listening to First Church Charlotte. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Now put your hands together and give God some praise in this house. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Yes, yes, we love you. Praise the Lord, everyone. Amen. It is so good to have you all in this house. And I want to just say one more thing about uh, this family, uh, Shay's family. I went, I was at the uh, funeral. I was honored to be a part of it. And I listened to all of the young people of that family say something at his funeral. And I was, all of the team, all of our leadership team who was there, we, every single one of us commented on how, how impressive they were, how they, they were, they, I leaned over to Don at some point, and I was like, I don't know if I could be as a, uh, as as together right now as they are, and um, so we we honor you all, and God bless you, and thank you for bringing Esther back to connect with us, and we speak God's continued blessing over your lives. <clears throat> All right, we are finishing up. We are finishing up a series we've been doing this summer called Storm Season. As you know, in the summer, in the late summer, when the northern hemisphere reaches peak temperature, uh, incidentally, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency, July was the hottest month that has ever been recorded in all of the modern uh, measurement that we have. And so I heard that and I thought to myself, the heat is definitely on. And I thought I would finish up this series with that title, The Heat is on, and I am, of course, going to use the story of the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. How many of you know the story? Now, if you didn't get to grow up going to Sunday school, I'm I'm sorry for you. You can be saved, too. It's just more difficult. Um, (laughs) But if you were like me, you're able to grow up in and around Sunday school, and you heard the story of the three Hebrew children and the fiery furnace. We used to have songs about it. We used to act it out. Uh, And we're going to look at that context of Scripture uh, today for some spiritual instruction. And we're going to allow uh, the lessons, the principles of the story, teach all of us how to handle trouble, trouble in our life. How many of you have ever been in trouble? Raise your hand. Have you ever been in trouble? Uh, Some of you were raised by parents who did not believe in spanking. There's a very low probability you're going to make heaven your home. (laughs) That's a joke. Don't get serious. Um, I I was raised by parents who believed in spanking. Uh, Once they became grandparents, they stopped spanking. I was so disappointed. (laughs) I was looking forward to watch other people get spankings for the cardio. I was tired of getting cardio spankings, and so... uh, uh, now they are a shadow of their former self, but if, you, uh, if you've been in trouble, uh, you are in the right place today to hear a preacher talk about trouble. Uh, let me ask you this. How many of you have been in trouble this year? Raise your hand. How many of you have been in trouble this week? <laughs> now, if you're married and didn't raise your hand, you have a lying spirit, Okay. <laughs> Uh, all married people know what it is like to be in, um, in trouble. 
I was talking to Beverly, our director of First Kids, this morning, and we were both joking. It was early, and we were setting up, and it's, I, I have such an awesome, I say I, our church has such an awesome team of volunteers who make this happen, and so when we get here, it's like a secret club inside the church. You know, we're here early, we see each other, we start interacting and talking. In fact, let me just throw this in here today. Um, uh, the best way to make connections in a church is to join the purpose and the mission and help make it go forward. That's the best way to make friends. Um, and so if you haven't yet found a place to carry the mission forward, uh, I'm telling you, uh, there's lots of opportunities. Anyway, moving along, and we were joking about how every Sunday afternoon we, we, we just die and take these long naps. And she said, my family knows when I go upstairs, they better not, they better not uh, wake me up. I, I didn't say anything, but I thought to myself, my kids know that if they wake me up on Sunday afternoon, the whole family takes a nap. <laughs> That's hardcore right there. It's a standing principle. If you, if my, on Sundays, if my kids wake me up, we all take a nap because it says so in the scripture, Nathaniel 14 and 6, after the Lord is exalted, thou shalt lay thy head and rest. It says it, name it and claim it. Booyah. Moving along. Uh, so uh, if you uh, have ever been in trouble, you understand uh, the situation that the three Hebrew children have found themselves in, and they have got themselves quite in trouble. But I'm assuming you all know the story, so let me real quick catch us all up so we all know the story together. Um, let's start with how it began. The king made a giant gold image of himself, and he commanded all the kingdom to bow down and worship that. Remember, the image, not real, but the image, everybody has to bow down and worship, and most of them did, uh, but there were some of the Jews who did not, and the king heard that some of his court had not done it, namely the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they had all uh, in their, uh, they just refused to do it. So they bring, they bring them before the king, and he threatens them. Uh, with death. He threatens to throw them in the fiery furnace. And uh, this is the story that we are learning, learning from. So I want to real quick give you the first lessons that I, that I derived from this story, and I want to share them with you, and then we'll go through the story, and we'll look for more truth in this, in this story. So the first lesson I want you to get out of this is how uh, the king made a giant gold image of himself to be worshipped. Notice that he did not present himself as he was. He didn't think that would be impressive enough to deserve worship. So what did he do? He made a fake version of himself that was bigger than he actually was, that was stronger than he actually was, and was made of gold and other related types of impressive, impressive materials because he wanted people to associate this wealth with him. He did not present the real image of himself. He presented a false image of himself. Now, why is this interesting? Here's why. The world loves to create a larger-than-life fake image of its idols that it then wants me to worship. Amen. 
So things that are good and fine and ordinary or things that are valuable in one context are going to be blown up until they are a mockery of what they actually are in real in real life. And so the world, remember, is going to create a larger-than-life image and invite you, tempt you, even command you to worship a f- something that at its, at its essence is fake. It's claiming to be something that it is not. Okay, here's the second lesson. Uh, we, all of us, are tempted, just like King Nebuchadnezzar, to create fake images of ourselves and put that out there as though, as though that's who we really are. We have a term for this. It's called social media. <laughs> and people put out this fake version of their life, and they're not really what they're, what they're looking, uh, what they're acting like they are. Let me give you an example. I was eating the other day at a restaurant, and uh, there was a table of, of pretty little girls sitting over by themselves. They, they were just at that age where their mom was letting them kind of go out and do the little girl-type trips, you know. Their parents probably dropped them off, but they're just as cute as they can be. They're just sitting over there, and they're all fancy, and they're all on their phones, neck deep. I mean, they're just neck deep in their phones, just like this, just nonstop phones, you know. And I, I look over, and I hear one of them say, one of them says, real, uh, says to the group, selfie. And she lifts up her phone like this, and they were all like this, and they all go. <laughs> no kidding. No pause, no preparation, no thought. They had it down. She said, selfie, they went, (laughs) (laughs) click, and they all went, (laughs) (laughs) I thought to myself, you guys aren't having that much fun. (laughs) This is the kind of fun you're really having, and this is the kind of fun you want everyone to think you're having. The world will tempt you to offer a fake version of yourself to the world as though that really is who you are. Uh, Let me tell you the worst thing about dating. Now, I've been married for 300 years, and I don't remember much about dating, but I want you to know the absolute worst thing about dating, and when I talk to single people, I still hear this, is the constant need to act like you're something you're not. It's, it's like, you know, I'm, uh, it's like dating is the fine art of acting like you're smarter than you actually are. It's acting like you're richer than you actually are. You washed your car. You don't have a clean car. I've seen your car. <laughs> it's not clean. But when you go on a date, you clean it all up. I've seen what you look like in the morning. I see you one morning every week. And it's the best morning of the week. So after all down, you understand what I'm saying. We get tempted to have this kind of fake reality. Third thing, when we reject the idols that the world has presented as having value, they blow these things up as though money is the end all or the be all, as though fame is the end all or the be all. And the very person who is most admired has a secret drug problem because he or she can't face the disappointment of their life, but they put this fake, blown-up image that's not real. When you don't chase after what the world chases after, some people will feel threatened by the fact that you don't want the same thing from life that they do. 
And finally, some of those people will feel threatened enough to try to speak against you, to insult you, or in some way exclude you, or uh, in the case of this story, they literally are at risk of their life. And so, when the three Hebrew children will not worship this fake image of the king, uh, it's not as though they haven't served the king. They've been loyal servants to the king. It's not as though they're not good at their job. They want to keep things in right relationship. Oh, I wish. If you hear nothing else I say here today, I hope you would hear this. You have to have a job, but you better not worship that job. You need money, but you better not worship that money. You ought to be the best person in your company at what you do. You need to be good at that, but you never need to look at that as though it's your savior. Come on, somebody. You need to let it be at the level it is. And the three Hebrew children have said, look, you've given us affairs to run. In fact, the criticism of the others is that these three Hebrew children are not even, they're they're not worshiping you, and you've given them authority in your kingdom. You can read the text where that's talked about. Uh, It's not as though they're unwilling to do their job. It's not as though they're unwilling to do what is needed to be done. They just are not going to mix up God and man. They're not going to mix up the holy and the carnal. They're not going to ascribe to the flesh the things of the spirit. The church, in order for the church to be the church, we can't reject the world. We have to be in the world, but not of the world. Our lives are centered on a different set of goals. Is there anybody here who's going to preach with me a little bit today? We found our life on a different set of decisions. All right, moving along. And so um, the reality is, is they're now brought in uh, to this, this being challenged by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar himself. They are threatened to be thrown in the fiery furnace. And that is where we are going to look for three principles. I'm going to give them to you. And then I'm going, it's like preachers are taught. And when you take homiletics, you're taught to do this. First, you tell them what you're going to tell them, number one. Number two, you tell them. And then number three, you tell them what you told them. See, I just gave you guys a degree in homiletics, and you're all ready to preach. I'll have a microphone ready for you uh, next Sunday. So <laughs> here's, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. It goes like this. Number one, the battle is the Lord's. Number two, God saves the whole person. And number three, my loyalty to God is not dependent upon whether or not he saves me. Yes. All right, that's the three. Now, here we go. Shadrach Meshach and Abednego reply, oh, Nebuchadnezzar's. Nebuchadnezzar, there's just one of them. Don't get confused. At least at this moment, there's just one of them. There's actually many of them in history, but there's just one of them in this moment. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves in this matter. Lesson number one from the story is the battle is the Lord's. I want to clarify this. I want you to understand it because in understanding this, there is a great sense of spiritual rest, at least in my opinion. It goes like this. Um, When is the battle mine and when is the battle the Lord's? There are some battles that are given to us. There are some battles that are given to individuals. Those are battles where you can do something about it. Your decision makes a difference. 
This is why there are things that we can choose that are very much not God's work. They're our work. And in this area, the battle is in your hand. You need to decide to serve God. God will not decide for you. You need to decide to believe the promises of God. He will not decide for you. These are the areas where the battle is in your hand. This is why the Apostle Paul says that he would discipline his flesh every day. He took it as a personal responsibility to discipline his flesh, not to be the prisoner of his lusts. It was his battle. Why? He could do something about it. But now, let me show you how this is a great rest, a great spiritual rest, a comfort to all of us. Whenever you are facing a battle that you can't do anything about, are you ready for this? The battle is not yours. It is the Lord's. The biggest battles in your life will not be the battles you can do something about. It'll be the battle that is bigger than you are. The battle that you don't know where to start, you don't know where to finish, you don't have an answer, you may not even have a decision. Some of the biggest battles in our life are fought when there is a contest beyond our decisions. I cannot choose for everybody. People have to make decisions for themselves, and whenever I find myself in a situation where I can't do anything about it, this is what you need to know. The battle is the Lord's. Why is that a great spiritual comfort? Because some of us have spent years killing ourselves because we were fighting a battle that was never ours to fight. The battle was the Lord's. And when the battle is the Lord's, you have to take it to an altar and you have to say, Lord, I'm leaving this battle right here for you. My job is not to fight. My job is to worship. My job is not to struggle. My job is to exalt. The battle is the Lord. Try to give you a practical example of this here. So um, I I have a, a unique... Um, learning experience in my life that I think can be helpful for you. The first thing uh, that I would say about that is I've made mistakes in ministry. I I have made uh, mistakes in ministry. Uh, I've made more than none of your business mistakes in ministry. And uh, mistakes in ministries cost you. And uh, I have uh, been quite uh, aware. And uh, because I was exposed to good ministry, um, I oftentimes did not know I was making a mistake, but I quickly figured it out. And then um, I would, I, I can say this. The only thing I can say in my defense um, is that when I, once I realized I was making a mistake, I was quick to apologize and I was quick to confess that I was, uh, I believed I was making a mistake. And this is what I learned. And this is something any of all of you who try to do anything to help other people, you need to know this. The quicker you know this, the more helpful it will be to your future productivity. And as, that is this. Not everybody is going to forgive you for a mistake that you made. Uh, They're just not going to do it. And some people will, after you make a mistake and you apologize for it, they're they're not going to forgive you. But they will then go into a season of their life where they, they need to make you look as bad as possible to as many people as possible for as long as is possible. Um, I, I, I don't know why, but I do know this. There are certain personality types that they feel like it helps them heal. I believe that's a, 
That's a wrong way, but uh, they, they're trying to heal. They're trying to process. Um, and some people have even learned bad spiritual habits where they seek attention by telling others everything they've been through. And part of telling others what they've been through is to tell people about the terrible individuals and who's done what to them. And uh, I have found myself at times spiritually debilitated because I realized that I, my apology wasn't enough. They weren't going to accept my apology, or at least they were going to do it to my face, and then they were going to continue talking as uh, bad about me as they could to as many people that was listened for as long as uh, they needed to do it. And I, 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 I suffered that personally as a, as a trial. And this is what I learned. When I am doing that, I am fighting a battle that I cannot fight. I've done everything I can do. And if I still carry that battle, let me tell you what happens. It destroys my joy. It destroys my productivity. And I end up spiritually frozen in place. I no longer am representing uh, the heart of God. I'm no longer pursuing the call of God. I'm no longer doing my best because I'm stuck fighting a battle I cannot win. Do you see how debilitating that can be to you spiritually? Before, you would have shown up with joy. I don't let myself come on this house without joy. Am I always feeling joy? Sometimes more than others. But when I walk in this house, I make myself get to joy by the act of will. Why? I've learned this. My emotions follow my decisions. Not my decisions follow my emotions. And I decide there's a right way to come to church. And I get out of my car and I, my I'm, Lord, hope that doesn't ruin my children. It may ruin my children and then this, this will be something else I'll have to give to the Lord because it's his battle. But I decide I'm coming to church with joy. And this is a survival tactic. This is not about me being so great or anything. Uh, note to self, Nate's not great. Um, he is a saint, but he's not a great saint. Anyway, moving along. I want you to see it's a decision. It is a choice. Some of you need to do that. I'm giving this to God. I can't fight it. What is stripping your joy, my brother, my sister? Would you please give it to God and let him fight that battle? If you could fix it, it would already be fixed. So the first lesson is there is a futility in defending ourselves. Well, I should be clear. My numbers are getting confused here. The big lesson I'm wanting you to take away, the first big takeaway is the battle is the Lord's. Under that is this realization that there is a futility in trying to defend ourselves. We can't expect critics uh, to always feel or seek to be fair to our heart. And when you get to a certain point, you have to let the battle be the Lord's. They may attack you for uh, your position of faith. They may attack you for your choice, the manner in which you live, uh, you've chosen to live. Um, And they may feel threatened by you because the choice of faith that you have made is threatening the lie that they every day tell themselves. That's why you get attacked by people at work. Something about you is threatening the lie, the narrative whereby they are living. And so you wonder why someone's attacking you. Something in your life, something in your decision, something in your uh, journey is uh, causing them uh, to either, I I don't want to go too far with this, but I want you to see that you can be attacked 
simply for the purpose of uh, defeating your faith. Three Hebrew children say we're not going to bow. And uh, they're threatened with death. And they say in verse number 16, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves in this matter. Imagine the courage to do that. This leads us to the second big takeaway from the story that I want you to uh, consider today. And that is simply this. God saves the whole person. He doesn't just save your flesh. He saves the whole person. I, I want you to understand this because though your body be destroyed, it doesn't matter because God has already promised you a new body. Anybody need a new body? Sometimes my back hurts so much when I'm preaching. The whole time I'm preaching, I, it's not today because I'm letting my stomach hang out. I don't even care. But some days, if I don't have a jacket on and my stomach hangs out and I start, I start holding my stomach in, my back starts cramping up, hold my stomach in, and the devil's behind me patting me on the back. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I need a new body anyway. As Christians, this flesh is not the end of us. God's going to save the whole body. Let me remind you of something you have heard me say a lot, but uh, I think it's helpful to remind you. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. What you have is a body. I'm going to say it again because this side was looking at me like I'm, you know, on illegal drugs. I'm not on illegal drugs. I'm on legal drugs. There's a big difference. I married a legal drug dealer. So what are you going to do with all that? This is what I'm saying. My wife's a pharmacist, just so you know. You do not have a soul. You are a soul. What you have is a body. The body you have is fading away every day. But it's okay. Why? You're going to get a new one anyway. I don't know about you, but I need a new body, and I've been praying that my new body has a six-pack. Because this body down here is a big disappointment, at least. <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to make a joke on that one. Moving right along, I am going to get a new body anyway. What do the three Hebrew children know? Even if you destroy this body, this is the lesson of Job. They would have had the story of Job. They would have had the book of Job. The book of Job is the, the oldest written down book in Hebrew tradition, even older than Genesis. That was written down after. Job is the first one. And what does Job say? Though the skin words, uh, the squirms destroy this body. Oh, praise God, church folks. Uh, yet in my flesh, I will see God. There's only one way that's possible. You're going to get a new body. All right. All right. I'm yelling. I'm sorry. Let's get back to some serious Bible study here. Your body is passing, but it holds a person that is eternal. And God has the power to save the body, yes. God has the power to heal the body, yes. God has the power to strengthen the body, yes. But the body's not as important as the soul and the spirit because he has a new body and layaway for you. <laughs> and you're going to get a new body. <laughs> They say to Nebuchadnezzar, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we worship is able. Somebody say able. The God we worship is able to save us. 
We have to believe salvation is of the Lord. It may include this body, or it may be the path to a better one, but salvation is of the Lord. Us Christians mourn, but not as people who have no hope. We mourn differently because we know we're going to see our loved ones again. One of these days, Sister Esther, I'm going to get to glory and I'm going to look down that golden road and I'm going to see a young man with this huge smile on his face and he's going to be bouncing. I can see him in my mind. Let me just have some fun. Right now, I can see Shay bouncing toward me, walking down aisle just like this. (laughs) He would come walking toward me just like that. And he would come up to me, this huge smile on his face, and he would say something good, never bad, always something good. One of these days, though his body has perished on streets of gold, what are we going to do? We're going to turn around, and I'm going to see, let me do it this way so you can see it. I'm going to see Shago. Pastor Nathan. How many of you know what I'm talking about with Shay? Pastor Nathan. Let me tell you something right now. This body will pass away, but God has a new body set in heaven for me. All right, I'm yelling. All right. All right, so, dearly beloved, God has the power to save you. Give me a good nod. All right. Secondly, not only does he have the power, but we believe he will save us from your power, O king. Verse number 17, and he will save us from your power, O king. I want you to know that when you leave the battle in the hands of God, the one who can meet the challenge is the one who has and holds the problem. When you're greedy with your troubles and try to hoard them to your own abilities, yes, you don't need as much faith. That may be reassuring to some part of your mind and spirit. You'll need more faith to give it to the Lord. But he's the one who can do something about it. If you're not tired of futility, you should keep trying to do it yourself. You maybe haven't suffered enough. But if you've suffered enough, it's time for you to say God can and God will. And since I can't do anything anyway, I'm giving it as an act of worship. I'm giving it to God. This is what God says through the prophet Isaiah 43, verse 2 and 3. When you go through deep waters and great trouble, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. All right. Number three, my loyalty to God is not dependent on whether or not he saves me in a way I approve of. My loyalty to God is not dependent upon how he saves me. He can save by few or he can save by many. I'm all good. He can save by me going over the storm 
He can save by me going through the storm. I'm all good. I don't care how he saves me. I just know salvation is of the Lord. I want to be as honest as I can be. I would much rather choose the path of salvation that doesn't involve me hurting. (laughs) All things being equal, I'm good with you hurting, but not me. Is that too much real talk for you? Y'all not used to preachers giving you real talk? I would much rather you be broke than me be broke. (laughs) Don't shake your head at me, you young lady. We got these girls up here that are so stinking cute they don't know what to do with themselves looking at me, looking at the preacher going. (laughs) 14 years old, judgy. What you gonna do with a generation like this? 14 year olds. Jesus help the preacher. Don't even know. Jesus help the preacher. I don't even know what he's saying. Jesus help the preacher. I love you, baby. You're awesome. All right, so um, I, I don't have to have an opinion about how God saves me as long as he saves me. And this is the statement that the children, the three Hebrew children make. But even, somebody say, but even. But even if God doesn't save us, we will never serve your gods or worship the golden statue you set up. Boom. It says it in the scripture right there. It says, well, it's not in there, but it should have been in there. If God doesn't save us, we will never. Somebody say, hmm. I need to ask for that more often. That was super fun. Even if he doesn't save us, we will never. Hmm. I'm about to get. Serve your gods or worship the golden statue you set up. All right, I'm almost done. Musicians, come up here and play softly something about people wanting to go eat and something like that. And um, so I'm going to give you some truths now that we distill out of the story. These are the truths. So in the, the manner I told you, first I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you what you'll do. Okay, all right. So number one, God joins you in the fire. Number two, God uses the storm to free you from things that were holding you back. Number three, God, bring, can, God can bring you through the storm unharmed in your body, not just in soul and spirit. Finally, God turns the storm into a testimony. All right, here we go. Number one, God joins you in the fire. He joins you in in the storm, you are not alone. In fact, the Bible's stronger than that. You are never alone. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age or the end of the world or end of the sermon. Whichever you need. I'm here to tell you. He joins you. Chapter 3, verse 24. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and asked his advisors. Okay, real quick. They took the three Hebrew children, tossed them up. They threw them in the fire. And because Nebuchadnezzar was having a pouty moment, he said, make it seven times hotter. They made the fire so hot that the guys throwing him in were smitten by the heat and literally died at the mouth. Uh, Some of them died at the mouth of the furnace. And uh, they, they throw them in there. And here we are, verse 24. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and he asked his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Didn't we tie up three men? And the advisors said, uno, dos, tres. 
Todays. Got to get that tongue. The Todays. Is that is that good? Good enough? Eh, ish. All right, I'll deal with you later. All right, so uno dos Todays. I like that. Okay. All right, here we go. So, yes, we did. They said. Well, look now, Nebuchadnezzar shouted. You can see uno dos cuatro men unbound. Yeah. Uh, oh man, they didn't even get that. You didn't get it either. You're thinking about unicorns over here. So, all right. So, that's funny. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me today. I had a great day yesterday. And so I'm in a good mood. Sorry. So, did not we throw uno dos tres cuatro? Yes, yes, we did. No, we threw three. And now there's four. And they're walking around free. Okay, here's the second lesson. The first one is God joins you, joins you in the fire. And the second one is this. The fire frees you from the stuff that was binding you. All right, all right. How do we know you're not alone in the fire? Well, look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted. Did not you see four men unbound walking around freely in the fire unharmed? And the fourth man looks like the son of God. <laughs> what? And the fourth is like a son of the gods. <sighs> all right, so... That's the truth. Number one, you're not alone in the fire. Here's some worship music for you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You need to learn some worship music to carry your truth. You take truth and you put it in a container of worship music, okay? All right, here we go. Secondly, the storm frees you from what was holding you back. And we read it. They're walking around freely. Now, let me read Isaiah 48, verse number 10. I have refined you, but not in the way silver is refined. Rather, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. That which was supposed to kill you ultimately refines you and frees you. One more scripture, Psalm 66, verse number 12. You let the captors put set foot on our neck. That sounds bad, right? Then we went through fire and water, and you led us out to freedom. All right, he's with you in the fire. The fire is going to free you of things that were holding you back. Number three, God can bring you through any sized mess completely unharmed. Some of you guys need to remember that. How big the mess in your life is doesn't mean you have to be harmed by it. It's going to feel like it. But when you come out, you'll be surprised what God can do. Whether he is the deliverer or the healer, you're going to be okay. That's what I want to say about that. Verses 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, sons of the Most High God, come out, come out at once. Then the three men stepped out of the fire. Then the princes and the prefects, governors and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing was not scorched. And this is my favorite part. 
they didn't even smell bad. Number four. Oh, real quick. That's the truth. Here's the worship music. Psalms 91 and 3. He will keep you safe from all hidden dangers and from all deadly diseases. He will cover you with his wings. You will be safe in his care. His faithfulness will protect and defend you. You need not fear any dangers at night or sudden attacks during the day or the plagues that strike in the dark or the evils that kill in daylight. A thousand may fall dead beside you, 10,000 all around you, but you will not be harmed. Lastly, God's going to use the storm. He's going to transform the storm into testimony. Okay, here's the thing. What's the testimony going to do? It's going to reveal your faithfulness and God's character. Your faithfulness and God's character. Then the king said... Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, I thought, uh, watch what happens here. Who sent his angel to rescue his servants. They trusted in him. They defied my command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make this decree. Now, this is Nebuchadnezzar, not the Lord. If anyone says anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be put to death and their houses will be destroyed. This is such a nice guy. There is no other God who can save like this one. When God is finished with your testimony, even unbelievers will say, there's no God like that God. How many of you who know people in your life, they don't want to serve God, but as soon as they get sick, they want to call you because they know you pray? I'm all the time hearing testimonies of people saying, oh, I, they, they asked if the church would pray because they know y'all pray. Let me say, let me just say it real clear right now. Here's a man, he is not a believer in the sense that they are. He is perhaps becoming a believer. He's on a journey of understanding, you might say at best, but he's still a heathen. But there's one thing, when God is finished with the testimony, even the heathen say, there is no one who can save like this God. He says, right, and, and let's see, let me get the right verse. There is no other God who can save anyone like this. Then God promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in uh, the province of Babylon. And here's some praise mu oh, music for you. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. I will honor your name forever and ever. Yahweh is great. Somebody say great. Yahweh is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your glorious splendor and your wonderful works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring works. I will declare your greatness. And then verse number seven, they, not me, they, 
will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Here's what I want you to get. If you miss everything else, I want you to get this. If you solve the, bat, the problem, if you fight the battle, even if you win it, you're not going to glorify God. You're going to impress people on how smart you are, how clever you are, how much you know, how disciplined you are. But if you let God fight the battle, the testimony meet won't be about how disciplined you are, about how smart you are, about how smart all those things about you are. It'll be about the greatness, the goodness of the one you serve. God wants to take your storm and turn it in a into a testimony. And can the church say amen? Stand with me all across the house. I've come to tell somebody you are going to survive this storm. Oh, I was hoping for some more agreement than that. I want to tell you again that you are going to survive this storm. Smile at your neighbor and say, you're going to survive this storm. Oh, tell them again, you are going to survive this storm. I know it's storm season. I know the enemy wants to hinder everything he can hinder. I know they're talking about this second wave of COVID. When this is done, COVID should be a curse word. I'm not even kidding. It should be a curse word. When we're done, it should be a straight up cussing. It's hotter than COVID in here. It should be a straight up cussing. I'm going to knock the COVID right off your face. That should be straight up cussing. It's a devil. Well, it's a virus. I get it. It's, I get it, okay? But here's why I'm sick of it. Because I'm sick of it. That's why. So I'm preaching to all of you folks who are sick of it. God's going to bring us through this storm. We have people in our church who have been greatly affected by COVID. How many of you know someone who's sick right now of COVID? We have team members that aren't on the platform here today because they're either sick or they've been exposed to COVID, okay? It hasn't happened here, thankfully, but that's not to say it couldn't. It's, it's a sickness. It's, it's, it, it's part, of, part of this life we live. But here's the deal, and this is what I want you to see. Whatever setbacks the church have, we're coming through the fiery furnace. Whatever storm winds blow, we're coming through that storm. The only smart thing for a mature Christian to do is to look at that storm and say, what can I do? What's in my hand? If it's in my hand, I'll fight that battle. But if I can't do anything anyway as an act of worship, I'm giving it to God. It's not going to destroy my joy. It's not going to destroy my hope. I'm going to take everything I can't control and I'm going to give it to God. And then I'm not going to tell God about my problem. I'm going to tell my problem about my God. I'm going to speak to the mountain. I'm going to say you're bigger than me, but you're not bigger than my God. You're stronger than me, but you're not stronger than my creator. He who began a good work is able to bring it into complete fulfillment. If 
you have a need here today, whatever your need is, tell you what, let's be specific. This is something Stella reminded me of yesterday. If you don't know Stella, you need to because you have a slightly better chance of being saved once Stella is your friend. True story, not even kidding. Um, so here, here, here's the deal. A vague prayer doesn't require any faith, but a specific prayer does. If it's vague, I mean, God help somebody somewhere. Oh, come on. That doesn't require any faith. But when I say, God help this crazy young man sitting right in front of me, now I get to watch the dinosaur brother right here and see. That young man was in a dinosaur costume, 100 degree weather, all day out there. He wasn't the only one. We got some dinosaurs over here too. What, one of the, I don't know, well, I can't keep straight. Anyway, this is what I want. Maybe you just act like a dinosaur. That, that would explain that. No, she was running everywhere carrying stuff. All right, here's my point. This is what I want you to get. A specific prayer will activate your faith because you'll notice what God does. You have a need, lift your hand all across the house. I have, I have enough needs. I lift both hands and 10 fingers. I have a need, all right? Right now, we're going to take the faith we feel to the throne of God. I want you to specifically mouth, speak, declare the need to God. I want you to ask in faith, believing, and then I want you to praise Him for acting on your behalf. All across the house right now, lift your voice. Our praise team is going to lead us deeper in worship. We're going to turn this whole house into a prayer house, and we're going to exalt the Lord together in this place. Lord Jesus, you sow every need that is manifest here that's being represented by an uplifted hand. I'm praying for Diane's family, Lord. They're sick. I'm praying for Holly Mellick. She's sick right now in the hospital. God, all the uplifted hands of representation. I'm praying for continued healing in my dad's body. These are specific needs that I'm bringing to you every day, God. And I'm asking for a heavenly intervention. I'm asking for continued peace and healing in Esther's heart and mind and continued peace and comfort in that family. Lord Jesus, I'm praying for the uh, Sister Bridget Samuelson's family and the loss of, of their mother. God, these are real needs in us. I'm praying for over 1,100 people who came through this property, over 400 cars we prayed for, families we prayed for. God, don't let them just slip away. But every time they drive by this church, let them feel your love in their heart. Every time they see something, a first church on their, their Facebook feed or wherever they're exposed to us, oh God, I pray you would draw their heart, soften their spirit toward you. If you have a need here today and would like prayer, step out of the chair. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us. Thank you.